0: Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories, and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. Hello, today I'm joined by Angela Buckley, a Victorian crime historian and um, author of the website Victorian Super Sleuths, which I will link in the notes. Hi, Angela. Nice to see you today. Hi Natalie, lovely to be here. Thank you. Um, As always I thought I'd get started by asking you about your own family history. So can I ask you what started you in tracing your own family history?
1: Yeah, well, I'm actually from Manchester. Um, so most of my roots, what well, I thought were around Manchester, but of course, with it being a, you know, the, an industrial city, everybody came from all over the place. So in fact, um, you know, my roots don't go that deep into the city, although they go reasonably deep. And um, I also have Italian ancestry. So my Italian ancestors came came to Manchester in the in the mid sort of 19th century. So that's all I kind of really knew about that. Um, my dad was born uh, next door to where I was born in, in Manchester. So I knew we were local, if you saw me. But his father, who his my granddad, who we lived with when we were growing up, I knew that he was from Wiltshire um, and he migrated into the city. So it wasn't really until he died and they left something in the 80s and left some things um, in, you know, in his possessions. So it was quite an intriguing letter and um, newspaper article about his sisters Who'd all migrated to the united states at the turn of the 20th century and so i kind of parked it for a while and then uh, and was busy with life and, and working and stuff and studying and then when the 1901 census was published online that was the thing that got me into it and i looked up my granddad and so i had known him you know he died at age 86 in 1986 so I'd known him as what I thought was an old man essentially when we lived you know as we were growing up and, I, and to find him on the 1901 census in Wiltshire um, as a six-month-old baby with all the sisters listed you know the ones all emigrated that was what really I thought wow this is really amazing and, and that was what kick-started my interest in family history. I can really relate to that because I
0: started tracing my own family history. Well, my mum had was the one that got me into it and she had already been tracing hers long before the internet. Mm. You know, done a bit and then got stuck basically. And then um, around the time that the 1901 census came <laughs> out, somebody gave me a book, I was 18, and then that was it. We were totally hooked and we, we did it together all the time. So that that I think that was probably quite a big turning point for a lot of people, that 1901 census.
1: You can almost remember the moment, can't you? I can almost yeah. remember that seeing that. Maybe, I don't know, was that the first one that was available? I don't. Or was it just because it was released online? I don't know. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember. But yeah, I, yeah, it was
0: exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> and um, do you have any uh, do you have any favourite ancestors? Any that you've enjoyed tracing in
1: particular? Well, in fact, that line to America has been the most fascinating line. So, so basically, I have four generations. who who emigrated to America and each time we were left behind in England. Uh, So I could have been American, (laughs) which is interesting, um, following the elections to see my ancestral states. And basically, eventually when I researched that properly, what I discovered was that my three times great grandmother, uh, Anne Nottage, was widowed when she was 50 or 52. Uh, and she was illiterate she was a charwoman and she lived in a, in a laboring community in Hertfordshire. and she basically up sticks and moved to the states and mm-hmm. um, and she with her oh, with well she had eight children she took five of them went to the states all adults by this stage and they had the most extraordinary adventures there They, they, you know, one of them fought in the Civil War. They opened businesses. One of them opened a business that later was famous for Red Sox. You know, they, they, they bought property. Uh, There was a sheriff. There was a county coroner. (laughs) The most extraordinary uh, experiences. There was a link with Buffalo Bill. And she herself, she basically spent ten years crossing the landmass to the Midwest. You know, out to the to the to the West, and she settled uh, in Wyoming, and she was an early pioneer of one of the one of the cities in La, in, in uh, Is Laramie in in Wyoming. So, it's an extraordinary story for just a working woman, uh, yeah, really extraordinary, no education, and and that 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 particular story never ceases to inspire me. I I'm still researching it because there's so many angles, <laughs> so many links. You know, they they did gold rush, they did all sorts of links with American history. They were in all the fraternities you know, uh, the masons, the whole, the whole lot. And, and that's probably the, the branch that I, uh, that I enjoy exploring the most. Do you, do you
0: find, um, I don't know about you, but when, when things go wrong sometimes in life and then little hiccups happen, I, I quite often find myself thinking about, in particular my great-grandmother, thinking, well, she just had to get on with it, so I'm just going to have to pull my socks up. Do, do you kind of have that similar emotional response to somebody that's, that's done amazing, um, <clears throat> quite inspiring things for, the, for their generation
1: i absolutely do yeah yeah i really do i think it's really inspiring and every one of her family did something um, you know the opportunities that she gave them by them well they all went together because I say they were all adults uh, but for her to travel, I just think that's amazing. We we often make excuses, don't we, for ourselves sometimes? Think, oh, I can't do that, or I can't do that for whatever reason. And but when you think of you know somebody just just doing that kind of thing and leaving their country, and she had a better life over there. And you know, obviously, my my family were very poor, but but at least she took the opportunity. Um, and my yeah. my own ancestor got left behind, and he he went to London and became um, a policeman, actually in the Met. Uh, Okay, he's got got quite an interesting story. And then and then it comes right down to the present day when my granddad's sisters all left because their father died when they were young, and they all left to join family members over in the States. um, And he got left behind and you know, and I did meet them actually well the kids one one branch went to Canada and I did meet them a few years ago we had a reunion and it was the most extraordinary experience 100 years since our my grandfather and their grandmother had been in touch and we got in touch through ancestry and we've been corresponding and we've now met three times. And I went over uh, in 2016, um, for a sort of celebration because it's my 50th birthday and that's what I wanted to do and I and I, and we have a very small family here and I had a fat, a, a meeting uh, like a, a lunch with 50 members of my blood relatives wow. and, my family and family and it was yeah it was it was one of the most special days that I've had so there's this uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I can't wait to go back when I'm stuck here and they're stuck there <laughs> <laughs> did, you,
0: did you see family resemblances when you met up with these these more distant cousins
1: yeah, so my, my main cousin, she's a second cousin, Mary, um, we have so many connections, and uh, and in fact I met her mother, her mother is still alive, um, and well in fact at the time, uh, three of that generation were alive, and they're my dad's first cousins, but they're much older than my dad, and, and they could remember coming over, meeting my grandparents, and that sort of thing, and yeah, there's lots of similarities between, particularly between me and Mary, we connected immediately on Ancestry, and we have a regular correspondence, and She's been here twice. I've been there. You know, it's, uh, uh, that's lovely. To I go when the, you know, when the restrictions lift. I'll be heading off to Canada to visit family. It's
0: incredible. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's really lovely.
0: I, I, um, I write to a uh, a third cousin of mine that I met via ancestry that shares my uh, on my pillar side, and uh, and we quite often swap research. Things like I've never met them. I've always wanted to. I've always thought it'd be really lovely to meet up. But yeah, I have to do it one day. <laughs> I can recommend it. Yeah, it was the most amazing day. <laughs> so you you mentioned one of your ancestors there was in the the, the Met. Was that your grandfather? Did you
1: say? Uh, it was actually my great great grandfather. Yeah. Is
0: that what started your interest in um in crime history, or, or were you already doing that at that point? or
1: yeah it wasn't really him actually uh, he came along later um, so when I so going back to my granddad's family that were in Wiltshire, the yes. first thing I did because uh, I live in Berkshire so it's just obviously a hop uh, into the next county. the first thing I did before everything really was digitized I went to the uh, what's now the was it the Wiltshire and Swindon History Center it wasn't yes, before so. the archives anyway in, Tr- in Trowbridge to just have a look and I had no idea what I was really looking for it's the first time <laughs> I've ever been and I found this file. Um, that said something like the good and the bad and the ugly or something like that on there and kind of really intriguing you know kind of title and I thought well, that's really weird what's that and I looked through and it's basically it was um it was a calendar of prisoners um, for the for the local uh prison in devices and that's what I was having a look at and I found um my great great uncle there called Cornelius Willoughby and Willoughby's my birth name so it's quite exciting and Cornelius Willoughby um and i got the tra- i got the, the trial records from the from the archive at the time and he basically um had been caught stealing potatoes uh from a local publican and his stepmother had shopped him in because she she she'd recognized the potato peelings and she'd gone straight <laughs> to the republican to report to report poor cornelius or nell as he was known and she obviously didn't like him very much and he was banged up for for six weeks in the local local prison and then, intriguingly, his father—so my great-great-great-grandfather—then tried to commit suicide, and uh, and I couldn't find out for ages um, why he tried to commit suicide. But that's the kind of slightly different story. But what intrigued me was the idea that I had an ancestor who who broke the law, mm. and it may and, and it may have had an impact on his father. Uh, it didn't turn out that that was the reason. Like like we were saying before, things are always a bit different in real life, and that really struck me that you know she that that she could chop him in that he could be he could be sent away for six weeks. And this was a really tragic family because originally there was something like eight children, and um, um, for my uh, great 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 grandfather's family, Thomas, uh, and so many of them had died due to poverty. And I think the thing that struck me the most um, is the poverty was the key factor in my family and and they're not the only ones as I came to investigate further apart from one rather notorious character who who didn't do it for for reasons uh, of poverty the rest of them many of them committed petty thefts usually food or clothing or wood and I think for me that was extraordinary. And I went, following that particular visit, I went to Marlborough, where that family originated from. I went to school in Lillard, saying, Marlborough. I did it? <laughs> yes. oh, have you been well. to the workhouse um, cemetery. There's a workhouse cemetery right. and three generations of my family died in that workhouse. And a hundred years later, you know, I've been to university, you know. Yeah. I was so different as a you know growing up a 100 years later in in relative wealth compared to them yeah. that really struck me and it was a very humbling experience so for me the crime was very much linked to the social experiences that the history uh the kind of lifestyle that my ancestors were forced to lead in comparison to mine you know yeah yeah were you one of the first generations in your family to go to university I am first person. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah but me too. Me yeah. too. And I think m- m- most of my ancestors were very poor living in um, uh, Notting Hill slum areas. Um, okay, you know, yeah. very, very poor. And, and yeah, crime, a lot of, uh, uh, mostly petty, but there's yeah. no yeah. other pub brawl that's got <laughs> a bit yeah. out of hand and things like that. But yeah, yeah, it does make you uh, look at just how far we've come in such a short space of time. Um, yeah. Actually, one of the reasons I was really excited to speak to you today is because uh, the Victorian era is my absolute favourite time period ever. I love it. I love it. And I, I just, I'm guessing you feel the same because you've decided to focus on the Victorian era. I just, I wondered um, before I rant on about why I love it so much, I thought I'd ask you um,
1: why, why Victorian? What's so great about the Victorian era? Yeah, I mean I kind of fell into history because I'm not a historian. So um so I'm a linguist and I didn't I dropped history when I was 14 because we had to go to Manchester Museum every week and draw pictures of Egyptian artifacts and we had a really weird teacher because I was at school in a convent and he was the history teacher was particularly unusual. Um, so so I gave up <laughs> I gave up history. So so I haven't got a range to draw on to be fair. Although I've always loved historical fiction. I used to read a lot about the Tudors as all teenage girls <laughs> did. <laughs> back then. Um, so, so I kind of fell into Victorian because I think the, because of the records really, because I could access, you know, my family history th- through that, you know, at that period and I have dabbled in other centuries. But for me, I just love the contradictions in the Victorian era. I love the I love that they're innovative and scientific and that they're always pushing the boundaries, yet at the same time they have quite a strict moral code. There's quite a lot of oppression, there's poverty, you know, great division between wealth and and and, and the wealthy and the poor. So I think for me it's a really complex and rich um, in the in the you know true sense of the word, not, not in terms of wealth, um period where all sorts of things are happening. You know, I really enjoy uh, reading about the development. During you know the Factory Acts and the changes, yes. the sanitary Acts, and how you get from a situation like because I'm obviously from Manchester, you know how Manchester started out during the Industrial Revolution and how awful it was in the cramped accommodation for the the uh, poor inhabitants in the centre of the city, to how it become it became uh, you know during during the during that century and, and how it ended up at the end, and obviously doing police history. Um, I see more of that through that than perhaps I do through my own family history because most of my family in the end all moved out as, as people mm. always do in the cities um, so that that's for me and different environments you know the rural life I mean I as a city dweller I don't know anything about rural life but I've actually quite enjoyed um, you know researching my own rural ancestors and trying to understand how difficult it would have been on the you know in agriculture at that time so immigration and emigration you know both of that's affected both of my families um, so so, I, yeah. I, I've been nodding vigorously. <laughs> yeah,
0: do you agree? No, I absolutely agree. I um, I think I probably found the Victorian era the most easily accessible as well. I did English lit at uni, so we did a lot of um, you know nineteenth-century novels in particular. I always seem to end up focusing on those um, that that period when we were studying, um, and I had a really good A-level teacher who taught us public history. <clears throat> And he just made it really come to life. He was just brilliant, so uh, that helped. But I think the, the the thing I love about it is that so much is changing, and you've got it. Almost feels to me that um, they really are our cousins because they are so similar to us, and yet <laughs> they are so different. You know, so I, I love that mix. Um, I've got one ancestor that went from being a a, a, a um, fish maker, uh, a fishmonger to an umbrella maker and i i, and I think that just kind of sums yeah. up the victorian period they're they're, they're innovative and inventing and reinventing themselves and and yet they have such you know some really strict social moral codes and yes. and, and yet they're bending those yeah no i love it i love it i could wax lyrical all day yes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, So in terms of policing, for for anyone who's not familiar, what what was Victorian policing like? Was it in its infancy or had
1: it been quite developed by that stage? Um, Well, it it was quite parochial. It was parochial before the early sort of 19th century. So in your community, whatever that kind of community was, whether it's a, a rural parish or a town, you know, a more urban township, it was managed locally. So it was a complex mix of a parish constable maybe who was uh, not paid it was a volunteer who was selected you know for a year if you're in a rural place you know who would go out and just try and keep the peace in the cities or the big towns they had a a complex mix of different types of policing which was usually the combination of um, a day watch a night watch and then something some sort of authority police so um, in in uh, Manchester, for example, we had a, what was called a court leet, and they they elected some police constables, but no real overriding system at all. Okay. And then in the 1820s, you start to get a push for um, I won't go on about this too long, but you get start no, to no, get 20s no, no, in uh, for more formal policing because people are worried about um, crime, really, and and crime in terms of usually in terms of pop, pop, uh, property theft. And also because all the people are in charge are all property owners essentially, <laughs> uh, and also public unrest. So you know uh, we want to keep the working classes firmly where they they ought to be, and of course you get the Met in 1829, um, but it wasn't the first police force. Um, it wasn't. It was the first formal and official police force but there were prototype police forces throughout the 1820s in different parts of the country um, notably in Cheshire and these some of these were from uh, Robert Peel they weren't you know they weren't separate from that
0: okay
1: so but but then you get a system basically you get a system of four police forces or types of police forces which runs all the way till the 1960s and 70s wow. uh, so really the whole thing so you've got the Metropolitan Police in London Um, which who are directly accountable to the home secretary you have another police force in London the city of London police which is accountable to a different organization and still is today Um, and then um, then you get county police forces and borough police forces and these start to these start to come into place through a series of acts starting in 1835 with the municipal corporations act when the town councils are set up uh, and then you, then you followed by other acts in the 1850s until roughly around the middle of the century. All communities are required to have a police force which is paid um, and sort of quasi professional at that point. Okay. These systems don't, aren't joined up and in fact they're not really joined up today because you don't get you only get chief constables outside of the Met and the City of London Police. Um, They're not accountable to the Home Secretary as such, not directly. I mean, we've got police commissioners now, which is quite interesting because we had police commissioners 150 years ago and then they were superseded by your local council. So it's a very piecemeal system until you had amalgamation in in the 1960s and 70s. Um, which brought some greater coordination. Um, yeah, it's it's a complex, it's com- policing is very complex in the in the UK, uh, even today. Uh, and there are constant calls to have it change. And there've been calls since, you know, the 19th century and it still hasn't been, you know, become I really, I have no nationalized, idea. you know. Yeah, you know. I
0: had no idea. So it's quite interesting how looking at, how, just go show how important history is, because you, you know, yes. you don't know that until you start looking into how it came to be. Um, yeah. It you know, explains how it is today. Um, mm. So what? how would police decide which crimes to investigate? Um, would they decide which crimes to investigate or, or were they told where
1: to go and what to do? Or how, how did that actual policing work? But it was quite complex because you also get the rise of the detective police, and I'm I'm doing a PhD in the, in exactly that at the moment, looking looking at as you say, looking at how the detective police um, develop their skills in, in invest in investigation and also looking at the impact of different influences on that. It was a combination of things really. I mean obviously the police were very much concerned or the authorities, so in the cities for example, so in Manchester, Liverpool and Birmingham which are the ones that I'm studying, they had watch committees and the watch committee was a subcommittee of the town council and they controlled the police. Uh, They had something similar in the counties, it just depended on where you were. So that was the watch committee or the the local authorities which directed the police mostly to what to investigate. And of course, um, depending on the crime in the area. So it would be things like theft, uh, burglary, robberies, assault, drunkenness, vagrancy. These are all the kind of things that most of the time the police were dealing with. Brawls, you know, that kind of thing, keeping the peace. At the same time, you do get national interventions so if there was a rise so for example in the 1860s there's a rise in garrotting particularly nasty crime so the police are you know effectively have to start investigating that later in the century you get the baby farms which I've also researched you know so they start to investigate that and infanticide so there's a combination of different things but basically anybody could affect that so um, in in the early type, type of 19th century ordinary people wrote into the police all the time to try and get them to investigate things. You know, the equivalent of social media was very much alive and kicking. The newspapers would be, you know, trying to influence the police agencies private agencies might be trying to employ the police for different things businesses could employ the police, police privately so it was a whole range of things and it was quite difficult for the police to to you know to deploy their officers properly because they were pulled in all different directions which is probably is no different uh, than it is today
0: uh. so what happened when a really really serious crime happened like like a murder or, or um yeah murder some something um you know sort of the worst type of crimes would would that generate a kind of automatic response almost or would it still require somebody to say you know you've got to go and
1: look into this crime yeah well that's we don't the truth is we don't really know and that's why partly why i'm researching it murder is one of the you know one of the chapters in my thesis is looking at that and i've been in the national archives reading endless murder depositions from lancashire and warwickshire to try and tie that into the detective police And there was no formal approach, I would say, at that time. There weren't that many murders. I mean, we do tend to think of it as a big crime and, of course, it was a serious crime, but it it was low incidence. Uh, Murder was relatively rare compared to other crimes and it would really depend at a local level on what was going on. So quite often I found that murders were investigated by police constables, uniformed police and then sometimes it was transferred to the detective department, so the, to the plainclothes officers, they tended to examine the crime scenes. But, but in the in the depositions that I've read, and I've read quite a lot of them so far, often, it wasn't. There was no investigation needed because often, sadly, it was cases of domestic violence. Probably more often than not, so the the drunken man would still be in the bedroom, you know, that kind of thing. Or somebody would know who it was. Or if it was a brawl in the street, local people would have been involved. They would have known who it was. So there wasn't a great deal of investigation needed. Obviously, increasing throughout, increasingly throughout the century, you need more evidence because the criminal justice system is also evolving. It's like the Victorians; everything is evolving. Um, so more, more. More evidence is needed, but um but no, there was no. I wouldn't say that there was no protocol as such for the complex crimes like Whitechapel. That's a whole different kind yeah. of issue. But that's rare, isn't it? You know, the White Whitechapel situation and what the Whitechapel situation in eighteen eighty eight shows us is that there was no coordination between the police, even at that late stage in the century. Yeah, which is
0: quite late, really, when you think about it. When you think how long you know people have been committing crimes since the dawn of time. <laughs> Um, it's interesting actually because my I have an ancestor that was um, that got off with uh, got found not guilty of manslaughter. But I say got off because I think he was lucky. Um, mm. He uh, they uh, he basically went into a pub and tried to start a fight, and I, I suspect it was for money. I think he was trying to get people to bet on him that he would win the fight um ag- against another chap who didn't really want to have a fight but basically got so annoyed with him insisting that he he fight him that he did so they went outside the pub to have a boxing match they had seconds um, and um, my ancestor hit this man and he fell and cracked his head on a curb and, yeah. and never woke up you know and he, he died um yeah. And it went to court and um, it looked like it was going to go against my ancestor, Thomas. And um, right at the last minute, the landlord basically gave evidence and said, look, this guy is horrible. <laughs> he's a drunk and he's not a very nice person. But actually, I did watch it. And and, and it was an accident. You know, it wasn't um, he'd already hit. He hit his head as he stumbled, but it, it wasn't from the punch. So he, he kind of got off. But interestingly, the judge said um it, I've got to find him not guilty because the police have botched the investigation the the, the witness statements uh, have not been taken properly um and it, it wasn't coordinated and then then when I looked into it one of the key witnesses was actually married to uh, like the cousin of the person that died and so you had you had all these other factors of, of, of people that you know may not have been telling the truth in the witness stand. so it was really interesting to see um that play out really and i can Mm. i can totally relate to what you're saying about the police not being coordinated at that time that kind of makes sense from my own small family history findings
1: (laughs) fascinating Mm. and there are lots of lots of instances like that in the records you know certainly for the cities you know the brawls that got out of hand um you know and it must have been very difficult wasn't it to really try and work out exactly what happened and you read these very conflicting testimonies don't you that he said she said you know they said yeah, yeah. Uh, quite difficult yeah. I think um, yeah
0: and, and and like with boxing being a really popular sport as well um, mm. and and that kind of taking it outside to have a have a fight for fun
1: for yes illegal boxing
0: as well <laughs> yeah kind of yeah Illegal so, betting mm, mm. yeah which it would have been, it would have been illegal betting so you can sort of see how that that could escalate mm. um so I was going to ask, let's just frame me for a second. I was going to ask how, how, what tools did the police have at their disposal to investigate crime? How did they go
1: about proving
0: or or disproving somebody's guilt or innocence?
1: Well, this is another aspect of my thesis, actually. Uh, very few, I would say. I mean, they mostly relied on their, as far as I can tell so far, on their innate characteristics of you know, typically, you know, being observant, you know, being using their common sense, and and basically being fairly determined to, you know, bring about a conviction. I mean, it was mostly built on witness testimonies. I would say um, very little evidence. I mean, they did collect evidence from crime scenes. Like, you know, I, what I love is they always produce them in court. So I always say there's always a bloodied axe, you know, in the court because they used to take the evidence away and then they bring it back, you know, now produced. Uh, and they would bring the bloodied clothing. And in fact, I was in the I was in the archives. Um, not Well, not recently, obviously, but when I was last in the archives in January, I was looking at something completely different and I and I opened the box as you do. And at the bottom of the box, I found a, a case that I wasn't at all interested in, but I, but they had lots of little white envelopes in, and I thought, this is very intriguing, what's this? And I opened the little tiny white envelopes and it was bloodied clothing. Oh my God, it, and it survived. For um, in case, yeah, just buried in the bottom of a, you know, in a, in a random box. So, you know, one of the things why we love, you know, doing this kind of investigative work. So they didn't have much beyond that, really. It was mostly, they didn't have any science until the end of the century. And even then, I haven't yet found any proof that they used it in the big cities outside of London. I think it's going that's gonna come in at the beginning of the 20th century. I haven't found a case yet where they used a fingerprint. I was just uh, gonna say, did they use no, it? Not yet. Uh, I have. What I have found not- noticed is increasingly towards the end of the 19th century, they're using um, sketches. So they're using plans of houses and 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 outdoor areas to show where the crime scene was and where they where the victim might or where the victim might have walked. that kind of thing. I'm seeing much more of that. I haven't found any photos yet, uh, but I've found um, I've found evidence of um, plaster casts. I haven't seen them for real. so where they've done a plaster cast of the victim's skull, for example, um, as I say, no no physical evidence, just a reference to it and more sort of sketches and plans so that I can see them professionalising, which is what I'm looking for um, towards the end of the 19th century and starting to build external evidence. They have more use of experts. Having said that, i found examples in the mid-century, particularly in poison cases, um, which is a whole other area, mm-hmm. where they have you know, collected um, samples from the scene and they have sealed them and put them in a, in a cupboard uh, as opposed to just taking them home and they have had them analysed by um by an expert chemist so it's piecemeal I mean as you know history isn't linear so no. what I'm looking for are those bits of evidence um and so the, so there's some I would say some limited use of forensic tools and evidence collection um okay. so if you if there any crimes that um
0: are there any crimes that you think are a probably more prevalent in Victorian times than they are nowadays. Um, and if so, why, you know, for example, stealing clothes, Springsteen, yeah. yeah. I seem to have loads of ancestors who, who yeah. stole handkerchiefs. Um, yeah. And uh, I just wonder whether you could tell us a bit about why that is.
1: Yeah, theft was the biggest, it was the most prevalent crime, certainly in the Victorian period. And it is mostly of clothing and food and it is down to poverty. You know, you think about the fact that probably most people only had one set of clothing Um, So, and if that, so they were always trying to steal things, uh, clothing maybe to wear or to sell on, certainly in the cities. And I think the black market was obviously buzzing continuously. I think that's the greatest theft. And we don't see as much of that now, but then we we have different types of theft for money, don't we? You know, um, you know, kind of uh, scamming. And well, scamming is a really interesting one, actually, because that's always been prevalent. Uh, so there've always been scams of all kinds of, you know, all sorts of ingenious methods. And another thing I love about the Victorians are so ingenious. So a multiplicity of scams and frauds throughout the 19th century. You know, from from using coins cleverly to sort of scam shopkeepers to you know dropping a fake gold ring or or betting scams or or really complex business scams where um called there's one called the long firm fraud where you would set up a bogus business and you'd order in you know all your things for your business whether it's linen or printing or whatever you're doing and then you send out you know orders to p- get orders in from people and basically the whole thing will be a scam you know and so yeah. nobody would be that all the stuff that was ordered would be sold on and all the you know all the money that come in for the business would just be taken they were massive in the 19th century white collar crime was huge it's amazing uh, they haven't made like a bbc
0: series of um you know that hustle <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thing. Thing. But, so but the hustling. Victorian
1: hustle—that would yeah. be a great deal. if anyone's watching from the BBC. Maybe. Yeah, from one single operator, you know, on the corner of a street in Manchester, to these massive scams and you know, insurance scams and inheritance scams, all the kind of things. That, you know, fake air air, uh, air hunters. You know, loads of those. Wow. Yeah, all sorts of things. Um, fake marriage bureaus and um, you know, immigration bureaus. All sorts of things I come across, particularly um, you know, in Manchester. For um, <laughs> his home city, only because I've, stu- I've been studying that city particularly, but you know, yes, uh, the imagination, the ingenuity was, was, you know, probably even better than it is today. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's, um, just, uh, going back to the, the, the theft of clothes, it just occurred to me, obviously, whilst we were talking, that, um, obviously, clothes back then took much longer and cost more to, to make as well, it's not like <laughs> they had Primark, on the corner mm-hmm. and, and clothes weren't disposable in the way that they are today. And I think I think yeah. sometimes when you're reading these crimes, it can seem quite petty that somebody's been punished yeah. for stealing a shirt. But then when you think about how much a shirt might have cost or how much uh, time
1: and effort went into making a shirt, yeah. then it, it starts to make a bit more sense. And, that's, and- that's, that's true even till more recently. My dad is a bit of a hoarder and has all sorts of stuff in his cellar. And he, he found a box of um, receipts, bizarrely, from our school uniform. Uh, which is the 1970s and it was really expensive yeah. because because there was no tesco you know so so we didn't have a school uniform when we were at primary school but in secondary school you know had a school uniform and it was the blazers it was extraordinarily ex- and this isn't a private school this is a regular school no, it was really expensive funny. you know yeah, it's really funny you
0: say that because I was talking to my mum the other day uh, about school uniform costs and moaning, and, uh, and she said, "Oh, you don't know what you're talking about," because um uh, she was telling me that she put my school uniform on on a store card because at the time they were short for money, and it took her over six years to pay off,
1: Unbelievable. Uh, you know, like
0: yeah. two years worth of school uniforms because they were so expensive because yeah. you didn't they weren't in the supermarket then on Matalan and Primark and those kind oh, of shops. No, no, the, nothing online, yeah, obviously. One set provider. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you're you're right. Even in recent times, those kind of things change quite rapidly. Um, so, if you were a, a Victorian criminal, unfortunately, or you got caught committing a crime, um, how what kind of punishment might you face? Um, you know, what are the, what were the kind of ranges of of, of punishment?
1: well obviously it does depend and uh, i think we tend to sometimes focus on the kind of bloody code at the beginning of the 19th century where you could be hanged for stealing a sheep uh, which of course was true at the time but that was rapidly dismantled in the 1830s and was not true for most of the victorian period now my own ancestors who committed uh, going back to family history committed crime mostly got fines I would say, uh, which, you know, often ended up putting them into the workhouse. So although it doesn't look like much money to us, it was still quite a significant amount of money. Um, In terms of more serious crimes, obviously there were custodial sentences. Um, There were nowhere near as many executions as we led to believe, um, and there were actually very few. And and there was often a push to avoid a death sentence. And so people might be tried on a on a smaller, a, a lower, lesser charge like manslaughter in order to avoid a death sentence. So there weren't as many of that that kind of thing. And often they were commuted anyway. When we see we should always it's always important to check uh, whether somebody was actually executed, because often more often than not, it was commuted to life imprisonment. And so imprisonment with hard labour was the main punishment I would say for more serious crime and of course also running through that you've got transportation which has gone by the 1850s stroke 60s okay
0: um
1: it's it's repealed in I think it was repealed in 1853 something around that and it takes another 10 years for that to 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 play out. So, again, it's a relatively small period when people were transported to the penal colonies uh, from the late 18th century, but then America pulls out and they go to Australia. So, it's not quite as um, rife as it, it would seem. I can't remember what the figures are off the top of my head for the number, but it's hundreds of thousands, isn't it? People are. But again, that's not so typical. So, I think really probably the most typical um punishments will be a fine or a period of in, of confinement uh which could be anything from a few days to you know life i guess that 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 probably runs through and and as i said before you know the criminal justice system is is evolving the penal system is evolving uh throughout that period as well so you know that has an impact on on sentencing sure.
0: um, I, I've, I got that, quite, I've got quite a few ancestors that were um that were given a choice of okay. uh fine or imprisonment or if you didn't pay the fine on time you you obviously got imprisonment but sometimes it was it would well, i say choice It's written in the papers as you know fine of x shillings or six weeks hard labor um yeah. and 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 sometimes you will actually see them saying i'll take the hard labor you know um yes, that's
1: which, interesting. Mm. which
0: i always think is quite poignant um yeah, that, actually critical. your wealth when you yeah. commit a crime even that determines um yeah. how you're treated yeah. did did it make any difference when you went to prison, how you were treated? Were, were different prisoners treated in different ways? Or by the Victorian period, had, had
1: uh, jail and prison become quite standard? Or yeah, you got these super prisons from the beginning. Of, well, from the 1840s, really. You get this again. We're talking, you know, about the Victorians and their evolutions and the penal system. There's massive revolution, evolution there. So you get the beginnings of the penal system, the the modern penitentiary system. So I think uh, it starts with Pentonville. I think it was 1842 or the early 1840s. They built Pentonville prison in London, uh, based on the American penitentiaries. And then you get this, this, you know, this whole this blueprint uh, for prisons. Uh, which we still have today, you know, we still have Victorian prisons today that were built on that original uh, blueprint from Pentonville in the in the 1840s. So you get very strict regime um, in most of those Victorian prisons then, which of course were large institutions. You get the what's called either the silent or the separate system where prisoners were kept in solitary confinement and weren't allowed to contact, you know, very bad for mental health, but weren't allowed to make contact Mm -hmm. with other prisoners because of the fear of contamination. I think it's true to say that some prisoners, maybe high-profile prisoners did get some, I mean, if you look at Oscar Wilde, you know, even in in 1890s, although he was subjected to quite harsh conditions here in Reading, at Reading Prison, he definitely had a better, you know, he still was allowed his books and and other things. So so I think there was still some, possibly some variation. And I don't know as much about high-profile. And I know a lot about high-profile prisoners, but they would tend to be working class. I don't know very much about anybody who came from a higher level in society as much. And certainly all the prisoners I've, I've uh, investigated all were treated pretty much the same, but they were all from the lower side of, of society. So that's not any great surprise. But yeah, there was hard, you know, the hard labour was institutionalised by then. A uh, very regimented kind of day. You know, the diet was regimented. Everything was regimented about prison life from the 1840s onwards. Um, and what
0: sort of thing would you be doing if you,
1: if you were subject to hard labour? What, what was hard labour? So it depended on the prison, but it could be uh, so in in Reading here, we had the hand crank. um, So you'd be basically turning a hand crank for hours at a time, um, which in Reading actually was used to draw water. But in many prisons, it didn't have any practical purpose. It was just for a punishment. Um, So you might be using a treadmill. Um, so again it was hours on the treadmill uh, which always sounds I did put a picture up recently on on uh, on social media of a treadmill it's not like a treadmill you know that we think of in the gym but uh, you know actually the steps were really high it was kind of wooden you know and, and it was exhausting um, and uh, you know it, it was it was physically very very difficult you might be uh, breaking rocks in some of the convict prisons they were breaking rocks in quarries and often building quarries or Excavating quarries, or whatever you do with a quarry, um, <laughs> you know, open picking. Or oh, there was a whole range: um, shot drilling. Um, there was a whole way you'd move kind of big, kind of cannonballs from one place to another. It was meant. To, there was a whole range of, of punishments that prisons could use, and they employed whichever ones they they wanted to use. And the basically the purpose was monotony and arduous labour um, to make your life pretty difficult.
0: It's it's really interesting that you make mention oakum picking there as well because I know that's something that the inmates were asked to do in the workhouse and yes. it it just starts that those blurred, blurred they. aren't they you yeah. know the, the work just again emphasizes just how difficult life was if you're if you were poor
1: hmm.
0: um, and oh I was going to ask something then it just popped out my head it will come back hang on um I'm doing about stones ah oh, what was it. I'll cut this bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is, is it, am I right in thinking, um, well, two things. Am I right in thinking that it was the Victorians that brought in the, uh, the panoptic eye? So the, the tower in the middle of the prison where you could see everybody. And so that in itself became a punishment
1: because you had you had no privacy. There was always the eye on you. Yeah, it was a sort of panopticon, and that was the blueprint of those Victorian prisons. So you'd have the central tower with the governor in, or the warders, and then you'd have it like a wheels of a spoke, everything arranged round so that you could, uh, they could keep their BDI uh, on what was going on, absolutely, yeah. Great. And I am also right as well in thinking that you had separate debtors' prisons, like
0: I'm thinking uh, Marshalsea in London. I'm thinking of Little Dorrit and, and Yeah, there's a
1: whole range of prisons, and I've kind of mostly focused on the kind of main institutions, but yes, the debtors' prison. I was looking at that recently actually because I was looking for an ancestor who got married in the debtor's prison. But I, I discovered that in fact it wasn't necessarily, didn't necessarily mean that he was in the debtors' prison because they were running a bit of a marriage racket, I think, round the area in Marshallsea, <laughs> doing kind of cheap weddings because of because uh, because of some act you know parliamentary act which I they were trying to get around something or other anyway i haven't quite okay. fully, uh, fully, uh, fully, fully yeah it, yeah that was kind of a bit weird but um but yeah so so there were different prisons as well for different types of things um i don't i know, don't know as much about the debtors prisons but yes you know, they, they were certainly in existence i'm not sure when they when they disappeared um um, so, with all the
0: work you've done on, on on looking at sort of individual crimes, is there any particular crime that has, uh, or case rather, that's um, you know that you've not been able to put down that that's really fascinated you, or um, you know,
1: really kept your kept your interest? Um, I've done a lot of work, obviously, with the Manchester Police, and there are a number of cases which I quite enjoy, kind of going back to there. I think, I mean, I think one of the most interesting cases and I think it, I think it's down to individuals actually and I think coming back to family history I think I think it's the individuals that fascinate you as a for me personally I think there are several things that fascinate me about crime history not so much the the blood guts and gore but for me it's about um the police and how they investigated thing and the individuals and more recently I've been quite interested in looking at victims of crime uh, which I haven't um perhaps looked at so much in in the past so I've tended to look at perpetrators of crime whereas actually um, the victims of crime are all very interesting as well, aren't they? And, and yeah. how they, how, you know, what happened to them if they survived and how would, what was the impact um, on their, their lives. And I keep going back to the baby farming quite often because I did, wrote a small book on Amelia Dyer, the, um, the notorious Victorian baby farmer who was arrested here in Reading. And actually, mostly I focused on her as the perpetrator because there's lots of mystique around her. You know, why did she commit those crimes? How many babies did she kill? You know, it could have been a hundred, hundreds. How did she get away with it for so long? Yeah. All that's very interesting, but there's very little we know about her. But actually more recently, I've been looking at trying to piece together you know the victims and who were these women who gave their women their babies over to a woman like Amelia Dyer? what happened to them afterwards you know because they were killed their babies unfortunately uh, were murdered but they carried on and I've been looking I keep going back to that crime uh, in a different sort of way and looking at infanticide and looking at motherhood in a way and you know there's quite a lot of um, I've been looking at other baby farming cases and there's lots of discussion about you know were these places of neglect and what's the best way to you know bring up a baby or feed a baby at the time you know again we're back to the victorians and what they were sort of looking at at the time and 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 so i think to me the social history is really important and, and certainly the baby farming although it's not my favorite crime in the sense i do actually find it quite unpleasant and sinister and not something i particularly enjoy talking or writing about all but but it is a window into society and i think and i keep going back to that 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 type of crime. But again, it's really trying to look at the victims. Um, it's, it's interesting you say about the victims because I think um,
0: uh, with the book, The Five- um, that was yes, um, yeah,
1: yeah, that's I, what, partly inspired me, yeah.
0: Yeah, I read that and it, it made me realise just how much, like even when I had written my own, uh, I had an ancestor that um, committed suicide and uh, at the time the papers linked it to the Whitechapel murders. They said that she'd had a fight in London mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and it made me realize how much I'd, I, Even when I was writing that, I focused on Jack the Ripper. I focused on that element to it. And actually, yeah. yet again, she got lost in the story the, the first time I wrote it. So I went back and relooked it yeah.
1: after reading the five. So I think it's quite an influential book actually. And I, I agree. And and I have um, a, a you know a notorious ancestor in Manchester who I always enjoy writing about, who's a brothel keeper. And I've dined out, out on him many times. He was a pretty <laughs> kind of Dickensian kind of character. But I never looked at the actual prostitutes who lived in his house, you know, and I've, I've since been back and tried to find out more about the sad, you know, the sad women that worked for him. I haven't been able to find out very much about them, unfortunately, but it really shocked me when I was reading The Five. I thought, gosh, I, you know, I, I talk about you know my brothel-keeping ancestor all the time, but I never think about the poor women that he you know had to do this thing you know to yeah. you know, line his pockets. Not that he was very wealthy, but you know. Um, so I think it is really challenging uh, to look at the victims. And in fact, you know, now when I investigate crime cases, I try and look a bit more. In, into the victims, and in the depositions that I'm studying uh, for my PhD, that the most of them aren't actually that relevant. But actually, but I have picked out some of the stories of the victims because obviously they're mostly um, coroners' reports, and and so that you know looking into their lives, and I've and I've started looking at, to the victims of those, and I think I'm going to turn it into a podcast series because there's some extraordinary stories just from those victims who have you know their stories have been literally buried for 150 years you know they were they were subject to brutal crime and then they're gone and nobody has ever remembered them yeah. they're not famous people by any stretch of the imagination nobody's written about them before so I become quite compelled into looking into their stories as well um, and trying to find out you know how they ca- how they came to be or well, just to find out who they were you know who were they you yeah. know what were the families like There's some really sad stories in the Liverpool uh, papers about young boys who go off to sea in the merchant ships and, you know, suffer fairly horrendous abuse. But the stories are quite extraordinary. You know, what was it like for a 15 year old to go off to sea and travel? You know, one of them went to Nigeria, another one went round, you know, round Latin America. What was it like for those boys? And sadly, you know life on board was awful and they and they ended up you know being being bullied and abused but but what would you know can we capture something from their experience yeah. before that happened so I've also been looking at that to you know I think would make a was, interesting podcast series well yeah let us know. <laughs> no, definitely let us know when you said it, it sounds really good
0: um I quite often think of the the descendants of those victims as well yes you know, if they had any and whether any of those stories had survived because I know um the the few crimes that I found in my family history um you know I I have one ancestor whose son tried to shoot him (laughs) but that and it's not that long ago he he actually spent a year as a policeman as well so so, another interesting story but um, that story you know it's not that long ago it's sort of you know 200 years it's
1: yeah
0: and yet none of that story has passed on
1: so no, I have no idea
0: when no I was family. Here. No, so I think almost kind of rediscovering those victims and then hopefully those people will do their family history and find them and then mm-hmm. and then find that they've got this rich, um, this rich story and, and rediscover them really. So that kind of brings me around actually, this is a question that I ask everybody at the end. Um, what would you say to somebody who was thinking about um, tracing their family history? What would you say to them? Would you to encourage them to do it? <laughs>
1: Oh, absolutely. No, I think it's, I do think it's genuinely a life changing and life enhancing experience. And obviously we all have our own unique experiences of family history, but I think it does set you off on a journey, which is, you know, tremendously exciting in many ways, even though, you know, many of us have ancestors who on the surface could appear quite dull because they were pretty poor and they didn't do anything famous. But for me, that's the fascination is bringing, for me, the fascination lies in bringing back the voices or the the people from the past whose whose voices have been buried for for decades, isn't it, for for me. Um, I think it's full of surprises, it's frustrating, although I don't actually find it very frustrating, but you know it can be frustrating, but I I think it's a a massively exciting journey and it's something that does inspire other people. I mean I try not to go on about our family history in great detail to my nearest and dearest. But, you know, but it does have an impact. You know, my daughter is much more aware of her. You know, she studies history at university. She's much more aware of her family history. Um, she did, you know, we um, have some Italian our Antal- Italian ancestors who drowned on the Andorra Star, and she's investigated that aspect because she's interested in, you know, war and the sort of Second World War. So I think it does have an, an impact on, you know, for the, for the whole family, if you like, even though that, you know, you have to be a bit careful going on about yeah. it in great detail. But no, I, I think, and, and I think to start to start quite small to a certain extent, but to keep your eyes open and just to follow the leads, follow your heart really. I, I don't know about you, but you know you, you end up with loads and loads of ancestors and, and most of them you ignore and then suddenly one will grab your attention and you'll go down that rabbit hole and think, oh, that's an interesting person. Maybe there's something behind that. I think you have to keep your antennae out all the time <laughs> and just follow your kind of instincts with them uh, rather than get too bogged down in the dates, I think and the, the building the tree. Um, no, I, I I I completely
0: agree. I mean, I, I definitely have um, certain lines that I seem to be drawn to, and sometimes I can't even explain why because it's not, yeah, not that they yeah. did anything particularly more exciting than other lines. Um, I don't normally it's because in some way I can visualise them or, or or connect with them uh, yeah, on a, yeah. on, a, on a on a personal level, I guess. yeah, yeah.
1: and and it still holds surprise. And I've been doing this obviously since the beginning. Was well, yeah, since the early twenty, you know. 2000s and in fact um, that ancestor who emigrated to America, my three times great-grandmother, I wanted to find out more about her and I thought some of the records suggest she's from Hertfordshire but when I delved deep, deep, more deeply she came from Essex and then I discovered that she goes her lineage goes back in Essex to the 17th century and you know my 10 times great-grandparents we're from Essex I don't know anything about Essex I'm not even sure I think I did live there briefly once when I was a student but you know that's like so now I've got like a whole other area that I'm from Essex you know which is just so exciting um so you just you know it, it goes on doesn't it it's the thing a gift that never stops giving <laughs> I
0: definitely have you, have you done DNA testing yet you don't I have, have you? yeah have you enjoyed it
1: yeah i can't say i know a great deal about it so so it's quite complicated isn't it um yeah, it we've all done it all our all the family members have done it and oh, i well. need to get more about it really um yeah no it, and, it, and it changes of course doesn't it so you know obviously when they when they analyze it differently it kind of i find the changing nature of it a bit challenging and um, there the ethnicity you mean yeah yeah it thrown it hasn't thrown up any surprises i have to say um but it has made connections with people and it is quite comforting to know that you do have DNA, you know, in those areas that you think of those parts of the country or parts of, you know, my my, my DNA is quite European, you know, the countries that I uh, do think I have a link to, you know, it's, it's quite comforting. But yes, that, that's an area I need to explore, so complicated okay brilliant well thank you very much for your time today i've really enjoyed it thank <laughs> you no it's been fantastic <laughs> Just
0: gonna... if you enjoyed this video don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk